God's Word in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. I am astonished that you who are so that you who are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let's pray. O Lord, use these words to glorify your name, to stir us to love and good deeds. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, does spelling words correctly matter? We have tools on Microsoft Word, Grammarly, so we don't care about spelling as much as we used to, but sometimes one misplaced letter, just one, can create quite the problem or quite the chuckle. In just about an hour, I'm hoping we have some sweet tea, not some sweat tea. If you're wanting to emblazon on your arm, no regrets. Make sure you put that R before or after the G, not after the E. You don't want no regrets. If you take your dog to the dog park, you probably want to exercise it, not exercise something from it. As you're texting your friends about your excitement that your son has now graduated from medical school, they may not be excited to know he's a sturgeon instead of a surgeon. And when you want to thank your teacher and tell him, you're the best ever, you helped me learn so much, you might want to make sure you actually have you, apostrophe, R-E, the best teacher, or they may think you're the best teacher. They're not that good since you couldn't even get that correct. But all of those little mistakes, we kind of chuckle. Do they really matter? I mean, yes, you're wrong, but it's not that big a deal. But there are some things in life where just the slightest deviation and you've ruined the whole thing. And that's what Paul is telling us this morning in Galatians 1, 6-9, that when we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can't have the slightest deviation or you'll ruin the whole thing. In these verses, he basically lays out three things. First, he lays out how they're deserting the gospel. Then he makes clear, but there really is only one gospel. And then lastly, in verses 8 and 9, he talks about the curse for distorting the gospel. But first, in verse 6, we see deserting the gospel. And Galatians is a letter where Paul rapidly gets to what he's talking about. He's getting to the fact that some of the Galatians have quickly turned and deserted God. You're in the U.S. from our history. We know the idea of desertion. We know of Benedict Arnold, and now his name is familiar, and it can be used as a connotation for someone who's a traitor. He had led the colonists to two great victories, decisive victories that helped shape the final outcome of the war, and yet, when it came time for promotions, he didn't get any, and officers lower than him were promoted. Several other things, along with some family factors, then led him to try and start turning over one of our army posts, army bases, to the British. Surrender a fort, and yet it was uncovered, discovered, and he had to flee 
before he was caught. And yet the colonists couldn't believe it. This was the general who led us to these decisive victories. And yet he quickly deserted for the other side. And that's what Paul is talking about here. People who quickly deserted the gospel for something else. But notice how he describes it in verse 6. You're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You know, what he's trying to make clear is they're not ultimately just deserting some facts. They're deserting him. They're deserting God. You know, often people reduce the hope of the gospel as, well, if you come to Christ, you don't go to hell. Or if you come to Christ, you'll get to be with your family forever. Or if you come to Christ, you can have a life without sorrow in heaven. And those are all good things. They're all good. We'll see results of the gospel. But what is the main thing we get in the gospel of Christ? It's that we get God himself. That we get to know and be known by God. Yes, it's wonderful to one day eternally be reunited with family. To have a life in heaven and not hell. To live a life without sorrow. But none of those is nearly as great as being with God. The flip side of this, though, is that deny, to deny the central truths of the gospel is to deny God. And we have to be very clear about this. For many will still want to retain the label Christian while they deny the central truths of its message. And yet we've been using a word over and over and we haven't defined it. What does the word gospel even mean? Well, if you went back to when Paul was writing, gospel was not a word that was used by religious people. Gospel was a word used in their culture to describe victory, to describe something that had happened positively for royalty. And so a messenger would come with news of a military victory, of something the royalty had done, and he would give the gospel, the good news. Maybe the military had won a battle. Maybe the king had made a new edict, and this was good news. This was gospel. Well, Isaiah 61 tells of God's future Messiah, and it uses this phrase, gospel. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring gospel, good news. And then it's interesting, what does Isaiah 61 then say the good news is? It's good news for the poor, that it binds up the brokenhearted, that it proclaims liberty to the captives, it opens the bars of prison, it proclaims the Lord's favor, it gives comfort to the morning, and it leads to God's vengeance. This is the gospel Isaiah 61 says is going to happen. And then you may know when Jesus began his ministry, he was baptized by John. And then he went where he was tempted in the wilderness. And then he went to Nazareth, to the synagogue where he grew up. And he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read those words from Isaiah 61. And then he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And yet there it says in Luke 4 that the ones in that synagogue, they couldn't believe it. They're going... Wait, isn't this Joseph's son? Wait, isn't this the carpenter's son? How can he be royalty? How can he be this good news of this Messiah, the king who's come? And even Pilate, when he questioned, he was wondering, are you a king? And he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world, implying, yes, I am a king, but not only a king here, a king over everything. And so Jesus 
came as a royal figure. He's the son of God. And so in summary, the gospel, what does it mean? At that time, it meant good news of a victory. And the good news of the gospel was that Jesus, the royal son of God, came, he took on flesh, and he restored God's kingdom. And yet you may be thinking, that kind of sounds a little different than maybe what was read from 1 Corinthians 15, where there it talked about, I remind you of the gospel that I preached. Jesus died, rose again for our sins. So why is the Old Testament in Jesus talking about deliverance for the poor, saving from um, prison? And Jesus, and sorry, Paul, then talking about forgiveness of sins. Why are they different? And here, people make a big mistake. They'll then go, well, that's because, and they'll use words like this, that's Pauline theology, whereas that's Lucan theology. And then we also have Johannine, or that means Luke, Paul, John, don't get confused, theology. And we really here have all these different views of what Jesus was like and what Jesus came to do. And yet a better way to see it is that it's many sides of the same beautiful diamond. It's not telling a different gospel. It's telling different parts of the gospel. So the Old Testament and Jesus, they're not saying a different gospel. They're talking about the results of the gospel. What are the results? That one day the blind, they'll come to have sight. The poor will come to have riches. That there will no longer be suffering. Paul is talking about the cause of the gospel. Why can we say that all of these bad things will go away? Because Jesus died. He rose again and he conquered sin and death. And so different emphases don't mean contradictions. And sometimes people have found it helpful to summarize the gospel with four big headings. Creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Creation, fall, redemption, glory. First, creation. It's a question of, how did we get here? And I don't mean Wichita Falls, that's a whole other question, but how did we get here, the globe, the, like, we have skin, we exist. How did we get here? What's our purpose? And the gospel tells us that God created a good and perfect world in which he made man to dwell with him and to rule and reign under his authority for his glory. That's the creation, yet there was a fall. That we basically rejected God's rule and said, no, you don't want to give us what's good. We're going to rule under our own authority. That's the fall. That's what went wrong. And then the third thing, creation, fall, redemption. How's all this fixed? Well, God sent his own son as a human. He lived and died. He lived as we should have in the kingdom. He fully submitted to God. And then he died and rose again. And what should we do? Well, if we respond by bowing the knee submitting to the king of kings, Jesus, then we are welcomed back into the kingdom. And so what does glory, what does perfect look like? Well, it's when we're with the Lord, when all the effects of sin are removed so that we dwell with God with no more pain, sorrow, or broken relationships. And you may think, okay, well, that's good for here in a church. We're in a religious setting. We talk about things like the gospel. And yet everyone has a gospel. Even completely secular people have a gospel. Let's think of these four components that even people today have. Creation, how do we get here and what's our purpose? Well, to look beautiful. To be liked, to be important. That's what life's about. Well, what went wrong? What's the fall? Well, 
No one notices me. I know I'm not rich enough, or I don't have the right clothes, or I don't have the right body size. So what's redemption? Well, redemption is when I get the right body size, going to the gym, losing weight. I get that cute outfit. Redemption is when I get the power, and I get the toys, and I get the respect, and everyone notices me. And so what's glory? People notice me when I walk in the room. People want me. I'm an important person. That's the gospel. And everyone is believing some gospel. That's a false gospel, but we all have some story of creation. How do we get here? Fall, what's the problem with this world? Redemption, how's it going to be fixed in glory? What does perfect look like? And you can either look for those answers to God's word in the gospel or to the many competing messages around us. And whatever the case may be, we're all living that out, whatever it is. So the question is, what is the gospel or the good news in your life? And I'm not asking, how would you answer that theologically on a doctrinal questionnaire? I'm asking, what in your life would you say, this is glory? If only I have this, then life is the way it should be. Tragically, we often know the gospel with our head, but our hearts are living for many other gospels. We're like Israel. We experience all of God's wonderful blessings, and then we turn around and we're worshiping a golden calf. We gather together. We praise God. Our thoughts are focused on serving Him alone. Only thing that matters is God. And then we walk out and we see someone who is a little bit maybe homeless, smelling. We kind of sneer. Glad I'm not like them. We see someone who doesn't say something correct grammatically and aren't they dumb? And we lose sight of what really matters. Or on the flip side, our life is crushed because no one noticed our post or our outfit or the food we made. You see, we're constantly fleeing from what really matters, the gospel, to all these other things that are saying, this is what's important. And yet the wonderful news is even our Proneness to wander was purchased on the cross. So we confess and we flee back knowing that he will forgive us. And the problem here in Galatia, though, is that the Galatians are deserting the gospel. And they desert the gospel because they are those who are distorting the gospel. And we see this in verse 7, that there's only one gospel. Because Paul's saying they're deserting the gospel, but then he wants to make clear, but I'm not saying there's multiple gospels. There's only one true gospel. There's only one genuine, lasting, and eternal hope for life. You see, the problem in Galatia, though, is that there was a group of Jewish believers. They believed, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus did come as the king to restore everything. And that's wonderful. And you still need to keep the Mosaic law. So they believed, but then they wanted to add things and say, to fully please God, you need to keep circumcision, dietary restrictions, and all the things that were under the Mosaic covenant and yet paul's going to use some pretty harsh language and we need to pause and say isn't he being a little harsh i mean these people mean well they're trying to lead people to honor god isn't that all that matters is well i i meant the best and yet no intentions are not all that matters the question must not be are we sincere or do they mean well those are good questions but the ultimate question should be Is it true? Is it what God said? While being authentic, while being sincere, while 
having good intentions are important, they don't give us a pass on distorting the gospel. You see, the gospel can't be messed with because it's perfect by itself. Some things in life are good when they're mixed. Food fusion. Seafood is delicious. Tacos are delicious. You make a fish taco, and I mean, we might be in heaven. We're pretty close. Salty food is great. Sweet food is great. Put them together, have a salted caramel mocha, and with a fish taco, you're in double heaven. You know, some things, you mix them and they get better. Some things get worse. Tuna and spaghetti. Whoa. Like, who would want to eat that? And maybe some of you are going to come after and go, that's my grandma's favorite dish. Well, <laughs> sounds gross to me. You mix it and it's disgusting. You had two good things, but you don't put them together. And sometimes we mix things with disastrous results. In 1999, the Mars Orbiter climate team was eagerly watching on camera as the orbiter was going to land. And yet all they watched was the 125 million pyrotechnic show as it went down in flames. Why? Because some of them used the U.S., or you might call it the imperial system, inches, miles, and such. And the others used the metric system, kilometers, meters, and the such. They mixed systems, and what happened? $125 million down in a blaze of glory. See, the gospel can't be added to, subtracted from, improved upon, updated, modernized, altered in any way without destroying the gospel. And the Judaizers, they think they're helping. We want people to be pure with God, and we should want that. But they are saying, so you need the gospel plus the Mosaic law. And yet, Jesus' work on the cross was so perfect that nothing needs to be added to it. And to add anything to it is to subtract from it. And yet, though the gospel is the central message of Christianity, we're often not very clear on what it means. And we often subtly distort it. Now, I want to give five subtle ways that we often distort the gospel. Now, I want to be clear Knowing God, being saved, does not mean you need to be theologically precise. When you come before God, He's not going to slide you a theological exam and ask you to perfectly articulate all the heresies that have come down Christendom. Yet, we should be wise to know some of these things and how they affect us. And so while you don't necessarily need to be able to pass an exam, it's good to know where are common errors. And the first one the first error is when the gospel is subsumed completely under the idea that God is love. Well, that's a wonderful truth. And yet the gospel is not God is love. The gospel does not merely proclaim God loves you. It says God loves you and God also is holy and just. And that he had to send his son to die for your sins. And if you really want to know the love of God... You also have to know the justice and the wrath and the holiness of God. And if all we tell people is, well, God is love, God loves you, you end up with a country like ours where many people go, oh, of course God loves me. That's what God is. God is love, so he forgives everything. He doesn't care how I act. And yet that's not the gospel. And so we have to minimize, make sure we don't minimize the gospel by taking an important, one of the most wonderful truths of it and make it the whole truth. 
Second, the gospel is not moralism. And what I mean by that is the gospel is not good news that Jesus died. And then if you live a good life, if you go to church and you're a good spouse, you're a good family member, a good neighbor, and you are kind, then God accepts you into heaven. Now, that may seem like an odd thing to say because, I mean, that's not the gospel. We're Protestants. We know we're not saved by our works. And yet, often it's in our emphases that we give the impression that what really matters is our morality. You can see this in the way that some Christian parents are so eager to get their child to say a prayer or walk an aisle or do some religious deed while they're not as concerned about their hearts and maybe their anger or what they love. And while those things are important, we should want them to pray. We should want them to come to Christ. We have to realize that ultimately... We're not just looking for external behavior to change. We're looking for them to have a heart that loves God. Christianity is not primarily about rules that need to be followed, but rather it's good news that I rejoice in and trust. One man said it well this way. He says, the gospel is not about making bad people moral, but about making dead people alive. If we teach morality without the transforming power of the gospel, then we are raising moral pagans. Now, to be clear, the gospel does change us. It is the power of God to salvation, so then we want to be moral people. So that is there, and yet that is not the main message. Third, the gospel is not God accepts you as you are. God has unconditional love. Well, there are elements of that, and yet that is so cloaked in therapeutic language that it ceases to be true. It's the idea of, well, look, deep down, you're okay. God accepts you just as you are. You have intrinsic worth. worth. Relax. Bask in God's smile. and Let the basically good you emerge. Well, God does accept us, but only as we are in Christ. If God accepts us just as we are, then there's no need for the incarnate Christ, the crucified Savior, and an empty tomb. If God accepts us just as we are, then all of the wicked will go unpunished. God does not just accept us. He loves us in spite of who we are because we're rebels. His love expresses us in not giving us the punishment we deserve, but rather pouring that punishment out on His Son. He accepts us because Christ was perfect in our place. Fourth, the gospel is not believe in God and your life will be better on this earth. Yes, Isaiah did proclaim many wonderful things that happened and will happen because of the gospel. Except the good news happened because Jesus died. Yet many Christians will say, well look, just trust God. As though everything's going to get better without any thought that God might not heal your child. He might not restore your finances. He might not make your situation on earth any better. Yes, one day all those things will be fixed. But here on earth, those things may not change. Fifth, the gospel is not believe in Jesus and you will be saved. That is how we respond to the gospel. 
And now you may be thinking, I've really gotten to the weeds, because what's the big difference? How you respond to the gospel, or what is the gospel? I mean, isn't this the kind of proverbial making a mountain out of a molehill? Well, that may be the case. Sadly, I've known many people where this is not a molehill, but a stumbling block for them. And what happens is they still start focusing on, do I really believe? Do I believe enough? Have I surrendered enough? Did I pray correctly? Did I do it? And all their thoughts turn in on, did I do it correctly? And what they've done is they've started focusing on their response to the gospel rather than just trusting Christ, trusting the gospel. You see, the thing that matters is not so much the depth of your faith, but the object of your faith. We don't get too many hard freezes here, but we all experience that really harsh freeze this last winter. And imagine you and some friends went out to a pond, and the pond had a foot-thick ice on top of it. Now, some of your friends went out and just started running and sliding and probably falling because we're Texans, all over the ice, they'd be safe. Now, if you went up and you got right to the edge and you just barely put a toe out because you wanted to be cautious and after an hour you'd only got your foot on and then after two hours you had two, would your slowness to go on the ice make the ice any less sturdy for you than all those who went running out on it? Of course not, because it doesn't matter how much confidence you have in the ice. The ice is a foot thick. On the flip side, if the ice was razor thin and your friends go charging out there and you go too and you jump, doesn't matter how much confidence you have, you're going right through. Because it's not the amount of confidence you have, it's what you put your confidence in that matters. Likewise, it does not matter whether you have a smidgen of faith and you cry out like the centurion, I believe, help my unbelief, or you have the most faith possible. It's what your faith is in, and if it's in Christ, it's more than a foot thick ice. So trust Him. Don't get focused on, am I trusting enough? Am I, am I? Get your eyes off yourself and look up to the cross. And so we must be careful that we don't allow any of these important parts. All those things we said are true things, yet the slight distortions when made the whole thing allow those to distort the gospel. The gospel is the only good news, the best news. And so Paul's going to end this section by saying, so look, anyone who tries to distort this, may God curse them. And we see that in verses 8 and 9, the curse for distorting the gospel. Verse 8 says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is making sure they realize this is serious business. This is not something to tamper with. If anyone, even an angel from heaven, comes telling you something different, don't believe it. Well, why is that the case? Well, that's the case because the message that they preached did not come from their formulations or their opinions or their counsels or their reflections. Paul only proclaims what was delivered to him, not was what was deliberated by them. You know, the gospel was not voted on. It didn't have to pass through committees first and then after edits and revisions come out with, this is what we're going to run with. 
Instead of this, God revealed the message and person of Christ to them. And since God gave the message, it can't be changed or altered in any way. You know, if it were merely Paul's opinion, merely the council's decision, well then when new information came, we might need to alter and tweak and adjust and modify. And yet, the eternally perfect God gave us a clear message. So since it's from God, the call to us is fidelity, not fiddling. And thus, it doesn't matter any person's role. It doesn't matter if they're a pastor, like me, or a theologian, or a famous Christian, or someone on television. What matters is what was revealed in God's Word. As we often refer to, we should be like the Bereans in Acts 17.11, which it says to them, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were checking, is this true to what God revealed or is this distorting from it? And so we need to be like that. And so Paul concludes that if anyone does deviate from apostolic teaching, what we proclaim to you, that person should be accursed. Now that's rather harsh language. It comes from the word anathema. It's saying they should be devoted to destruction, something we've seen quite commonly in 1 Kings. And yet, isn't that a little harsh, a little intolerant, condemning? And yet, while our society may cringe at such clear black and white black and white language of what's going on, when something of eternal significance is at stake, the gospel is at stake, we must be serious. We're going to have a potluck here in a few minutes. And imagine we were back in the dark ages, 2015, when Bluebell had listeria. And consider, it's a harsh story, I know, so I had to end on such a tragic story. Imagine that it's just coming out, and you got a text from your friend during the service that said, Hey, we were shopping at Market Street yesterday, and I just read on the news that several people were hospitalized, and someone just died from the bluebell we bought. Don't serve it at your church meal. You've got to make sure no one's having it. Well, if you let people have it, and they got sick, and some of them even died, and we go, Didn't you get a text? And he said, But it would have made the meal so unenjoyable. I mean, that would have been awkward. I would have had to say I bought something that was bad, and, and some people already had it in their bowls, and they were already enjoying it. And, you know, that was just someone's opinion. I mean, did everyone get it? I mean, that's their perspective on Listeria. We go, what are you talking about? You were given a message that could save people's lives, and you cared more whether they were having a good time and what they would think about your response. You're to be clear and let people know no matter what they think. We would be upset. And so God is upset when he sees people going, you know, it'd be unenjoyable if I said Jesus is the only way. That, that, that might make things here a little awkward. And there's lots of opinions out there. And so, you know, I'll, this is my opinion. I'll keep it to me. Let them have theirs. Paul says, no, may those people be accursed. And you know, all of this kind of begs the question, why would people who love God ever tamper with the gospel? I mean, why were these people? Well, it's often because we have good intentions. It, yet again, that doesn't make it right. 
You know, often today this happens when people with very good motives want to see people come to Christ. And they say, you know what? If we want them to come to Christ, we need to kind of soften the hard edges. We need to update the message a little bit. We need to get in 2021, so to speak. And yet in these efforts, they've unintentionally neutered the gospel. The gospel, the full message that tells of the bad news and the good news is the power of God. And then sadly, what happens is we have mass-produced evangelism and gotten many decisions for Christ without disciples of Christ. We have filled churches with people who don't show any of the power of God in their life. And then people look at the church and they go, they're just like us. What's the power in that? What's the message there? They act just like the world. And so we end up ruining the gospel by trying to make it more palatable. We no longer talk about sin, but more about acceptance. And all along, if we had been faithful to the message, we can trust God with the work, then the gospel and salvation would be clear. So what is the gospel? What is Christianity all about? It's not primarily a philosophical system, though it has philosophy. It's not primarily about rituals you need to observe, though there are things that we observe. It's not primarily about rules to follow, though out of love for God you'll want to follow His rules. It's not fundamentally about God's love or your acceptance or the necessity of faith. The gospel is about the king of the universe stooping down and becoming a man. It's that he lived and died and rose again, taking the punishment and curse of sin. And so the king has come and he's restoring the kingdom. And this is the best news in the world. And so then we get to our response. Have you believed it? Do you follow it? Or are you still seeking other gospels in your own kingdom? You know, there is no better kingdom. And there's ultimately no better hope and lasting hope than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's not distort it or tamper it. But let's love it and delight in the king who has come. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a glorious message you've given us. Forgive us for our wanderings from it or our attempts in our so-called wisdom to improve it. Lord, may we be faithful to you. May we long to hear the message and respond accordingly. Even now, Lord, draw people who are finding hope in other gospels to find hope in the only true and lasting gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.